For those of you that were here last week, I hope you remember that we started talking about David when he invites the lame Mephibosheth to come to his table. Remember that? And be a part of his own family. And Brian and I had just a great time right after church last week when we were in the back room because he remembered that song that he just did. And he said, Lon, what if we did that to bring us to God's table? in the same way that David had invited Mephibosheth to his. So, hope you valued that. It's precious to us. Well, uh, welcome everyone. And again, those of you that might be visiting today, we're so glad that you're here. If you were at the marriage conference and you came back because you don't have a church home, we welcome you as well. God be with us. We're doing a seven or eight month journey on the life of King David. And a lot of people say, and my dear wife reminds me to tell you that uh, who David is, because a lot of us don't know. David is the person that has the second most amount of biographical information in the whole Bible. Jesus is first, of course, but David is second. Massive amount of information about his life. And that must mean God has things to teach us from his life. From David's life, we're going to learn about life. From David's life, we learn about ourselves. And especially from David's life, we learn about God. Because he wasn't always a king. He was once just a regular person. He was a shepherd boy. But he loved God in such a great way that God anointed him to be king over his whole land. We've watched him from the 20s to the 30s to the 40s to the 50s and now... For these last four weeks that we've got in his life, you're going to see David in his final decade, ages 60 to 70. It's the time when you hope that everything's going to go smooth in your life, but then you remember that you live in a real world, and it doesn't. So walk with me now as we take off with David at age 60 in one of the most important lessons he will ever learn and that we can learn from him, and that is the bigness of forgiveness okay all right now here's the story David was doing well he he built a great kingdom a great city capital Jerusalem there was peace on all sides economic progress etc 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 and then in his mid 40s his mind and heart began to wander a little and David slipped into horrendous wrong things the first huge mistake he had made is, is he married at least 10 women, around 10, and had another 10 concubines, and that produced 40, 50 children. And most of us say, I have trouble making it with one. All right? I don't mean wife, because that's a blessing all the time. Uh, Marie's not even looking at me. Uh, <laughs> there she did. Oh, <laughs> and just imagine the jealousy, the one-upmanship that would happen between multiple wives and family and the neglect that had to take place, and his whole family system was asunder. And then on top of that, his moral life fell apart. And, and he, he took a, a woman who was not his wife, in fact, she was the wife of one of his best friends, he commits adultery against her this is in his 40s 
And then to cover it up, he finally engineers the murder of his, one of his best friends. It's hard to believe that the David that loved God this much would go that bad, but he did. And his family all saw that going on. And so pretty soon, it wasn't just adultery and murder from David. Even in his own household, there would be adultery of brother against sister. There would be brother killing brother. In fact, after David's great collapse, then the prophet Nathan would say to him, because of these things that you have done, David, the sword will never depart from your own family. And in fact, your family members will betray you. Well, at about age 60 is when it all happens. Hell breaks loose. Premeditated, systematic undermining of David's nation and David's life itself. He'll be hit from two different sources, either one of which could cripple every one of us in this room. The first will be one of his sons, the son that's the heir to the throne, will categorically plan a way to take over the whole kingdom, not believing his dad has the right to rule any longer. His name is Absalom, and he will betray his father. But it isn't just him. David's best friend, his closest advisor, a man by the name of Ahithophel, and he will become a part of the conspiracy against David, and he will turn against his best friend. The word is betrayal. Betrayal. And betrayal is a horrendous assault upon one's soul. It's made even worse when betrayal happens from people we thought loved us, that we thought trusted us, and we can't believe how friend can become enemy, how friend can betray, how family member can betray. It, it, it happens within homes, and it happens within friendships. It happens in nations. Betrayal, betrayal, betrayal. Nothing hurts quite as much. And this is happening to David, and it has happened to you. And may I also say this, you've probably also been the perpetrator of betrayal. You've probably betrayed. And so we look at ourselves square in the, in the face today as David will look at himself. Now, before we jump into the text, I'd like to put up a chart that, that we've created this week. As we think of this whole thing, the only answer to the pain of betrayal is forgiveness. It's the only answer. It's the only thing that works. And so we've titled this to forgive or not to forgive. On the far left, you see the offense. Whatever it was that happened to you, that came out of the blue. But when it happened, you felt totally devastated. Why? Because either the situation or the perpetrator of that event or perpetrators were people that mattered to you. And so the first thing that happens in the human soul is hurt. You can't avoid it. You can try to deny it, but you can't avoid it. It climbs down inside you and it begins to capture you inside. Hurt, hurt, hurt. Hard to believe. You can't believe that it happened. It, it, it hadn't happened on Tuesday, and when you wake up in, on Wednesday, your first thought is that hadn't happened, then you remember it has happened, and, and, and you're just devastated as a human being. And that turns to resentment. 
It, 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 it works in different ways, but, but just generally there was that sense, why did this happen to me? I thought they loved me. Why did this happen to me? I thought we were friends. I didn't deserve this. And so resentment starts to rise up. Absolutely natural. I don't know that you can ever escape it. Don't feel bad if that happens. That's human. But it's what you do after that that starts to matter. You know the great poem by Robert Frost, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. That really works out here, because if you take the lower road, resentment turns into full-fledged anger, and anger turns into hate. I mean, you start wishing that, that, a, that, that, that a building would fall on that person or on that situation. You, you start wanting to make sure that everybody understands that that's not a good person. With your tongue, you can hate. With your mind, you hate. And sometimes, even physically, hate. And then you want to get back. You want to get back. They deserve this. You ever been in any of this? Not fun. Finally, prison. And here's what some of us are doing. Yes, they deserve prison for that. <laughs> but that isn't it. You're in prison. You're in prison. You can't get it out of your mind. You can't get rid of the resentment and, and the all, all hatred. You're in prison. Your soul is chained. And a lot of people live their whole lives that way. There are whole people groups and ethnicities that live their existence that way. And you know what happens? Time stops. If you don't deal with this in your own life, if a nation doesn't deal with this and having been offended, 50 years hence, it'll be as strong a motivation as it was the day after it happened. It never goes away. Anger does not die. But there's another way. It's the upper road. Hurt, resentment, and then forgiveness. You're going, you are kidding! <laughs> no. You choose to forgive. Why? Because God has forgiven you and God has said to you, forgive. Remember the prayer? Forgive us our sins as we what? Forgive those who sinned against us. Hey, I am not saying that the forgiveness level happens because you feel like forgiving. You don't. But volitionally you say, I choose to forgive. The will leads the emotions here. And when you make that choice and you commit yourself to God, over time, depending on how bad the infractions were, over time, forgiveness starts to move not to hate, but to healing. And as you hope in God, God starts placing even his own love in you for the persons that hurt you the most. And you end up becoming even a healer sometimes of those who have most hurt. And then finally, free at last, free at last, 
Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. The point comes when you can honestly wish well and bless happily in your mind and your heart those that broke your heart. This is one of the greatest gifts that Christianity has to bring to people. Now, which road did David take? You ready to go on this thing? Which road would David take? All right. So here's what happens. Absalom, his son, with Ahithophel, puts together this massive army. They're down in Hebron, about 20 miles away. The word gets to David that they're on the run, that they are coming. That massive army is moving toward Jerusalem. David gets apprised of what has happened. He's overwhelmed by it but he has to start to take action. And what will he do? He knows the only way he can save himself, the rest of his family, and those that love him is they have to flee. And so the David that had to flee to the wilderness when he was in his 20s is the David that will have to flee again to the wilderness in his 60s. Jerusalem mobilizes and the people begin to move out of the gates, down the dusty stone roads out of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, and they start coming up to the Mount of Olives. They're going to end up traveling on foot nearly 80 miles before they get to where they believe that they're safe. And that's only so that they can then organize because this is all out war. Now, turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to 2 Samuel please. 2 Samuel, and would you go to 2 Samuel and 15 and verse 30. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we provide some, and we're going to be reading a lot of, a lot of the Bible this morning, starting on page 311, 311. All right, for those of you who didn't bring a Bible or turn one on and don't want to open one, I have one of the verses on the screen for you. Here's the question. What was going on inside David when he discovers this and he has to flee? Here's what it is, 2 Samuel 15, 30. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. The sign of deep sorrow, of tremendous inner affliction, of absolute weakness, he was lost. It isn't just David. All the people with him covered their heads too. And they were all wailing as they walked out. Friends, this is thousands of people. And they're all wailing. You want to get inside David's feelings just a little bit here? Some of the Psalms were written during this event. And, and one of them, you won't have time to turn to it. But let me just read. In Psalm 3, David writes, Lord, how many are my foes? How many have risen up against me? And then in Psalm 55, he, he goes further in this. He says, Lord, my thoughts trouble me. I'm distraught because of what my enemy is saying, because of the threats of the wicked. 
for the suffering they bring down on me. They assail me in their anger. Lord, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling beset me. Horror overwhelms me. And then just like us, David says, Oh, I wish that I had the wings of a dove. I wish that I could just fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away. I would stay out in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter from the tempest and the storm. Lord, confuse the wicked. Confound their words. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about on the walls. Malice and abuse. Destructive forces in the city and in the streets. Lord. And then he gets really personal in verse 12, Psalm 55. He goes, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. And then he says, but it's you. It's a, it's a man like myself. It's my companion. It's my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we would walk about among the worshipers. Verse 20, my companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, but war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, but they are drawn swords. So this is the kind of stuff David is thinking and will end up writing and end up singing through this era of time. And all the people with him are suffering just as much. And yet he cries out to God. He says, cast your cares on the Lord, people. I can hear him just shouting it out as he turns around to all those weeping and wailing. Cast your cares on the Lord. He will sustain us. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And so, there's David. There's what he's going through. Now, read with me from 2 Samuel, starting chapter 16 and verse 1. As they wind down the hill and up to the Mount of Olives, here's what happens. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth. Remember him? waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled, loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. And then the king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, well, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. Then the king said, well, where is your master's grandson. Why isn't Mephibosheth with you? David feels betrayed by him. Ziba said, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to him his grandfather's kingdom. And so the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours, Ziba. I humbly bow. Ziba says, may I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. Next scene, they continue walking. As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shemaiah, son of Gera, and he cursed 
as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimeah said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel, David. The Lord is repaying you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your own son, Absalom. You have come to ruin. You are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, commander of the special ops, says to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut his head off. Vengeance. The king said, what does this have to do with you? If he's cursing, because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? Then David said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than would this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do this. And then I love verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of these curses today. So David and his men continued along while Shemaiah was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went, throwing stones at him, showering him with dirt. And the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination, and there they refreshed themselves. This whole trip will take nearly 80 miles in. It will be days upon days. And then for next months, David begins to organize in the wilderness some way to stand against the massive army led by his son and his best friend that's coming to destroy him and all who are with him. The battle will break out. We don't know how many were there. One commentator said that he thought there were hundreds of thousands of warriors between the two sides. Massive. Battle of the bulge. Others say as few as 50,000. That's still a lot. All we know is that before it was done, the Bible says 20,000 people perished. And David won. 20,000 people perished, and one especially, Absalom, his son. Now what will David do? Turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 19. And if you would, find verse 15. 2 Samuel 19, 15. Put your finger there and hold it because I want you to see what occurs just before where we're about to start reading. Look on the screen. The king was shaken. Why? He's just heard about Absalom. He went to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. How will David respond to this massive betrayal? When the war is over, the first thing he does is forgives his son totally and completely. 
And that's just the beginning. Verse 15 and following we read. Then the king returned as far as the Jordan River. So now he's traveled back some 60 miles. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king at the Jordan River. Shemaiah, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamite peoples and Ziba, the steward of Saul's household and his 15 sons and his 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. Verse 18, they crossed at the ford of the river and they crossed first so that they could carry the king's household over and do whatever uh, the king wished. And when Shemaiah, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell face flat, prostrate before the king. And he said to him, King David, may the Lord not hold me guilty. Please do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know, verse 20, that I have sinned. But today I've come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord the king. Then Abishai, commanding general, special ops, says, let me put him to death. He has cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone else be put to death? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I'm the king over Israel? And so the king said to Shemaiah, legal edict, you shall not die. And the king promised that he would never kill Shemaiah. Now, look who shows up. Verse 24. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson also went down to meet the king. And he had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day that he left until the day that he returned. And when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him. To me, this is one of the most moving sentences in the whole text. He says to him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? I, I brought you to my table. You're one of my own sons. Why didn't you come? Why did you betray me? That's kind of what's going on, right? But Mephibosheth says, My lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and I will ride on it so that I can go with my king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king, is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. He's really saying, with me. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord, the king, but you gave me, your servant, a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to ask anything further of my king? Then David said, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the lands. And then Mephibosheth. This is just what a person who's filled with gratitude does. He said to the king, Lord, you let him take everything. Now that my lord the king has returned home safely. Wow. Loaded, huh? 
Lots of stuff there. Absalom is killed. And David's forgiveness is immediate and deep. It's so deep that he almost can't break out of his sorrow. Shemaiah, who had physically abused him, who had verbally abused him, is told he will not be killed. He is set free from the curse that he had poured on David. David did not pour it back. And Mephibosheth, totally forgiven. At this point, David has seen so much bloodshed. At this point, David has seen so much sin, and a lot of it's in him. He, doesn't, he just doesn't want to have to judge anybody right now. He just wants life to return. Oh, incidentally, only a few years later, Mephibosheth's life will be in danger once again. And David says, no, it won't. And he saves him one more time. So what does David do? The one who had been betrayed so deeply forgives. We are most apt to forgive when we understand how profoundly we have been forgiven. Don't you find that true? The older I get, I'm in that decade with David, that final decade of his life. He'll die at 70. I won't. I'm staying until 80. You are stuck with me, <laughs> especially with my lovely wife and kids, I hope. But I just know this. I, I think I forgive easier and more quickly. I don't hurt any less. When I get betrayed, it hurts as bad as it did when I was 25. But I think I forgive more quickly. Why? Because I just realize how much gunk there is in me that I've done to others. How could I not? We most forgive when we understand how profoundly we've been forgiven. Look what C.S. Lewis says about this. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I don't know what you're facing as an individual, but I'm quite sure if you've been around a while, you've been deeply wounded by those you loved or by situations where you thought you had trust. I'm sure you have. That's a part of being human. One of the members of our church knowing I was reading this passage this week, sent me this note, a letter. And I asked him if I could have permission to share it. He said, yeah. He said, Lon, about several, several years ago, while going through a very hard time in my life, I found that I was nursing some pretty serious resentments, which I felt I had a right to bear. A mentor helped me to come to grips with how I had also committed many wrongs and exactly what they were. He also taught me that in order to try to make them right, which I finally knew I had to do, I first had to deal with my resentments and come to a point of forgiveness. I believed him, but I didn't see how it was possible. I thought I was in the right, that I was the victim, or at least I thought that my wrongs were nothing compared to the wrongs that I thought had been done to me. But with a lot of help and work, the idea sank in that if I wanted to be forgiven, I had to forgive. 
Although this is an obvious teaching of Jesus, it was hard to accept. I felt like I had some sort of right to hold on to those resentments. And deep down, I feared that if I let go of them, that my strength would be diminished somehow. That I'd be the loser or worse. And then he writes, resentment is a killer. I was told that it's like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. Should I read that again? Resentment is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. The cure for resentment is forgiveness. First, I became willing to forgive. Remember how I talked about vol volitional? Then God put some amazing circumstances in my life where by the grace of God, I was able to forgive those against whom I held the greatest resentments. And I even ended up being able to reach out to them in their times of need and sorrow. Remember, healing, and you, then you become a healer. I began to feel something, I think, of God's heart for those people. Guess what? My world didn't stop spinning. I didn't die. And then he says this, the heavy chains I'd been carrying fell off. I felt lighter. It seems so obvious now, but the guilt and the shame of my own sin had blocked me from the light of God's care and forgiveness. I am so grateful that God pulled me back, taught me the lesson, and set me free. I can tell you that besides feeling better, God has produced a lot of fruit through that repentance. And then this person signs off, unworthy except by God's magnificent mercy and grace. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. I know this is true. I know it for two reasons. Because when Jesus died on the cross, the first thing he said to those that placed him there was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. My Lord chose to forgive David's greater son chose to forgive from the cross while he was bleeding from the wounds that they had placed in him. And then I know for a second reason, because I'm so old, I've done a lot of stupid, awful stuff. And I have experienced what happens in God's people when the forgiving love of Jesus surges in them. You can't do this on your own. You are not good enough to do this. I don't care how good you think you are. You are not good enough to forgive without God's power. But when you say, God, I choose to forgive, but I can't feel it, God can. And his love starts surging in you until over time, the forgiveness starts finding root and the forgiveness moves to healing. I know because I have received that kind of forgiveness. And I know because I've experienced the miracle of forgiving. All God, not us. So, I want to say to us all, welcome to the real world. Resentment or forgiveness? Jesus will give you what you need to forgive. We need to cut some slack with one another, I think. There's a song by Joan Osborne, and I really like this line. We've got it up here for you. After all, 
we're all just strangers on the bus trying to make our way home. Isn't that good? Yeah, we're all just strangers on the bus trying to make our way home. But remember what our Lord Jesus said and what he will do by this final word from the Lord's Prayer. And Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Let us pray. Father, I commit this to you. Uh, these serious, serious words. And I pray for everyone here that they will cling and call out to you so that they can forgive and be set free. So that they can throw away the poison. The poison, the hatred that never dies. Set us free. Amen and amen.